Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Family members of violent crime victims gathered in Saratoga County this week as officials push for legislation that would require state parole boards to fully grasp the impact of an offender's actions. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. Speaking inside the Saratoga County Public Safety Facility, family members whose children were killed in a high-profile 2012 crash described the intense emotional process of providing an impact statement. Christopher and Deanna's law, a bill sponsored by State Senator Jim Tedisco, is named after Christopher Stewart and Deanna Rivers, two Saratoga County teenagers who were killed in the crash caused by Dennis Drew on the Adirondack Northway a decade ago. Standing beside his wife, Regina Michael Stewart, Christopher's father, said the victim's impact statements need to be videotaped. The emotions need to be felt, and the commissioners need to see a face of a victim and not a name written on a transcript. Drew was sentenced to up to 15 years for the incident where he drove drunk and high on Interstate 87. Brian Rivers and his wife Debbie, who lost their daughter Deanna, described the difficult process of providing a statement at Drew's recent parole hearing. The experience we had on June 17th of this year delivering our victim impact statement was revolting. Rivers said they were given less than an hour over the telephone to provide their statements. There was not enough time to read a statement from Deanna's sister. To treat victims in his capacity or asked every 24 months to open themselves up in the same pain as the night of the crime is a disgrace. The family said they did receive an apology from the State Office of Victim Services hours after they were cut short while delivering statements. Nancy Izo and her two sisters lost their brother Paul Luther, a police officer who was killed in a 1976 mass shooting in Mechanicville. You may think even though it's 45 years, how can you still feel that hurt? You can. As the Rivers and the Stewarts have said, you have to relive everything. Izo said for the first 10 years of the parole hearing process involving her brother's killer, Billy Prine, she and her family members were able to meet with parole commissioners in person. She said the emotion is lost over the phone. They can't see the tears. They can't see the emotions in those papers. Tedisco, who has been a Capital Region state lawmaker for decades, represents the 49th State Senate District. He's authored a bill that would require all parole board members who vote on parole for an offender watch video recordings of all victim impact statements before making a decision if they don't meet with the victims face to face. We're not saying everyone should be opposed to uh, parole. We're saying they should get that victim's impact statement to them from the victim. That's what it was purported to be. The Republican is also supporting a bill that would change the amount of time between parole hearings from two up to five years. We'd like to change the law so it says not only every, not 24 months, but 60 months, because the pain and the anguish uh, never goes away. Saratoga County District Attorney Karen Hagan, a fellow Republican, said she has a say in an offender's parole hearing, but also has questions. I submit letters as well as the, the victims. Every time someone comes up for parole, 
but we don't know what happens to that information. Hagan said the impact on victims should be given equal consideration at a parole hearing as during sentencing before a judge. Sheriff Michael Zerlo, a former Stillwater Town Justice, joined his colleagues in the call for reform. I can tell you firsthand, uh, I've been at a couple of these parole hearings, and for what they're doing now, just to have one person on a phone call, the effect of what the victims are trying to portray doesn't get across. During an election year, Tedisco, a Republican, framed the legislation as a genuine way to improve the system for victims while criticizing Democrat-led criminal justice reforms in recent years. If it was really criminal justice reform and not deform, they wouldn't need another reform to reform the initial reform of criminal justice. The most recent state budget included changes to the state's 2019 bail reform laws. In a statement, the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision said it does not comment on pending legislation and noted the parole board is an independent body whose members are confirmed by the legislature. To view their complete response, visit WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Surprise, Alan, from the Capitol Confidential. Lobbying spending bounces back to pre-pandemic levels. Groups vying to influence New York's government reported spending nearly $293 million on lobbying in 2021. Isn't that a large part of the problem with politics on the state and national level? It certainly is, because here, here's what happens. You want a pound of uh, beef. You go to the meat market and you say, give me a pound of beef. And you put hard cash on the counter and it is scooped up and you get what you want. You get the amount of beef. Now, if you take that analogy and look and use it for lobbying, that's the same thing. The legislature is a meat market. We know that. It's very simple. If you want something, you pay for it. How do you pay for it? Well, bribery is illegal, but I'll tell you what isn't. You go to the legislator and you put money on the barrel head and you say, here is for your campaign. Now, what, are we stupid? Do you think that the people who are taking that money don't understand that this money is being given to them to create an obligation? It is. That's why it's there. And that's why lobbyists do what they do. We have lobbying commissions. We have other groups that are supposed to be looking over all of this. But in fact, this practice goes on, and John Q. Public has much less of a chance than somebody who is well-heeled and who wants a special favor granted by the legislature to do it. New York left hits wall in primaries. Last month's primary election was a disappointing one for progressive Democrats in New York as statewide and assembly candidates lost to incumbents across the board with few consolation victories. Uh, people moving back toward the center? Well, the fact is that the American people are conservative. New Yorkers are conservative. They're in the middle. They're not off the wall. And we see that time and time again. 
And so people on the uber left or all the way over are likely to win many victories now in New York State. The people in the middle tend to carry the day. And if that's what we want to use as a definition of conservatism, so be it. Well, Alan, guess who's been hanging out in the Hamptons? That would be former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who has reemerged on the social scene. He was hanging out with Billy Joel, a good friend of his. He's been spotted dining out with Mayor Eric Adams. Obviously, he has kept himself at arm's length from politics. Cuomo, of course, still has a lot of campaign money sitting there. Will he ultimately dip his toe back in? For all of us who think we know anything about Andrew Cuomo, the Schneerson book and everything else that has been written about him, we know, of course, that this is his chosen vocation and he's going to want to do it and he has the money to do it. And one and one makes two. He'll do it if he can. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartok. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The Supreme Court's decision last month overturning the 1973 abortion rights case Roe v. Wade has had instant reverberations, with red state clinics shuddering and growing concerns about other rights, like same-sex marriage, that could one day be rolled back. Republicans are cheering the court's conservative majority, while public polls show a majority of Americans disagreed with ending Roe, So, what will the impacts on November's elections be? I spoke this week with Lee Maringoff, director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion. This was a very dramatic uh, decision by the court, um, changing the direction of of half a century, really, uh, of uh, policy and and approaches to the court to decision issue. Uh, 56% oppose overturning Roe. Um, and 57% thought that the decision was politically motivated, not based on the law. And I think that is something we might want to talk about. That's certainly important. Um, a lot of people have lost trust in the, in the Supreme Court. Only 39% say they have a great deal or quite a lot of trust in the court. Um, there was an interesting uh, sidebar in all this was that 62% of registered voters say the decision by the court makes them more likely to vote in the midterm elections. And that included 78% of Democrats, but only 54% of, of Republicans. And a majority of Democrats, a majority of Americans, I should say, are also concerned that the court's decision could also jeopardize the rights uh, to other issues like contraception, same sex marriage, same sex relationships. Um, so this was a decision that really, uh, you know, divided the nation uh, in a very political way. Um, I think it was uh, generally an unpopular decision, uh, probably not the last of those uh, when you're talking about a six to three uh, advantage uh, on the more conservative elements of the court. Um, and, uh, you know, looking ahead towards November, which is where people are looking. Uh, on almost everything these days, uh, you know, the idea that Democrats seem more motivated now to vote uh, and see this as a wake-up call, um, among other things, 
I think that becomes uh, even more important than than uh, you know just the decision, which is obviously the, the more significant part. But the cl- clearly the uh, voting and motivation for for uh, the fall elections, uh, you know, has its place as a, being a very important part of this. Yeah, interesting that uh, it seems like Democrats more than Republicans are activated now to go out and vote. I'm wondering though yeah. whether you know, a salient issue like abortion trumps an issue like inflation. Well, see, this is what's interesting. Uh, First of all, uh, several of the issues that have been sort of occupying uh, the nation lately, uh, abortion, uh, guns, uh, the the very status of our democracy and and the hearings over uh, over January 6th uh, attack on the Capitol, these are all things that um, aren't one-and-done news stories. They are, uh, first of all, things that are going to continue and have, you know, have some shelf life of, of, of significance. Um, so I think that's one thing clearly that that's important. And the other thing I think, um, uh, like like inflation. Uh, these are issues, abortion and guns, uh, and the state of our democracy that people, you know, are influenced by. It impacts them. Um, that's also clearly true about inflation. Uh, but now uh, our minds are uh, occupied and focused on these other issues, which you know are, you know, very specific for people: uh, reproductive rights, uh, safety from guns. Um, the uh, what's going to happen with all these uh, potential court cases with the, the health of our democracy and, and the hearings. Um, they're long-lasting, and they do have uh, – they do cut close to home. Um, and I think that you're going to see, uh, you know, the impact of this is not going to be, well, as I say, one and done. I think we're going to see it ongoing. And the inflation is an interesting one because – you know, ultimately, as we know, the economy makes all the difference in the world. Uh, but do we really know what the mood about inflation is going to be in three, four months uh, when gas prices have started to dip? And uh, we just don't know where that issue is going to be going and whether it's going to be front and center or how much these other issues are going to dominate. And right now they're playing to the Democrats' advantage in terms of the enthusiasm um, and really, uh, you know, the questions are about enthusiasm, but what we're really tapping into is a an anger people have, a, a rage that they feel uh, because the court decision, uh, the the lack of movement on guns, um, these are all things that uh, that are seem to have really uh, riled up the Democratic base in ways that uh, Joe Biden certainly hasn't. That's Lee Maringoff, director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. An effort is underway to permanently protect a Boy Scout camp in the southern Catskill Mountains. The Conservation Fund has purchased more than 6,000 acres of 10 Mile River Scout Reservation from the Greater New York Councils of the Boy Scouts of America for an undisclosed amount. The multi year plan would eventually turn about 9,400 acres into state forest land. 
The Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis spoke with Tom Duffus, Vice President and Northeast Representative for the Conservation Fund, and Dick Davies, Scout Executive and CEO of the Greater New York Councils, about the effort. Duffus started by describing the property. The Tema River Reservation property and its area around it, it's, a, it's the southern Catskills, and it's rolling hills, beautiful streams, a blanket of forests that transcend all the way down to the Delaware River and... Um, Across the way is the Pennsylvania State Game Lands. It's really where the Catskills meets the Poconos, just outstanding. Um, the property, uh, the environment is a very wild river, the Delaware River, and the streams, the trout streams, Tamaha River, and other streams that flow through the area, and hiking trails, and all sorts of opportunity for wildlife to roam and for uh, climate uh, issues. Uh, carbon sequestration in these beautiful forests. Now, Dick Davies is the scout executive and CEO of the Boy Scouts Greater New York Councils. Dick, what sort of facilities and features are there at the reservations for scouting activity? Well, we have three primary camps um, on Ten Mile River, or the the property. Uh, Two of them are probably what non-scouting people would view as traditional dining hall-type camps. uh, both sit on the sides of beautiful lakes. And then we run a third camp that is patrol cooking where the scouts do their own cooking. Um, so we also have a small family camp where sort of alumni and family members of scouts uh, can rent small cottages. So uh, it's one of the largest scout operations east of the Mississippi uh, and uh, you know, pretty traditional what you, you would expect at a, at a scout camp, but it's a large operation. Now, I understand that the Conservation Fund is purchasing nearly uh, 6,100 acres uh, of the reservation. Why was the sale deemed necessary? Yeah, I'll start with that. I'm sure Dick uh, will want to add on to it. Um, We are in the process of buying all about 9,400, 9,500 acres uh, in total. We're doing it in two phases. Um, This is a project that is part of um, a nationwide effort to conserve our forested landscapes around the country. We are losing uh, way too many forested landscapes and properties to development and conversion to uh, non-forest uses. And the Conservation Fund has developed the tools to be able to address that need at the speed of the real estate market. So um, this is a tremendous opportunity for conservation at a landscape scale. Uh, it's a working forest with some extraordinary habitats and incredible resources for the public, uh, about 60 miles of hiking trails and so forth. Uh, but that is, that is why uh, we are involved here. We can move uh, really at, at a very quick pace. Um, ultimately, this land is intended to become a new state forest, but obviously the state of New York uh, has a process and uh, can't move at the same speed that we can. Go ahead, Dick. Yeah, I would say in terms of the reasons for the sale, and you know, this probably doesn't come to, as any secret to you or your listeners, which is, you know, COVID has put financial pressure on pro- uh, nonprofits of all sorts. And um, while we have an endowment, it's not adequate to sort of fund our ongoing operations. And so we were looking for a variety of ways to raise funds, um, and, um, 
you know, finding a way to try to monetize value from our three camps. We have two other camps in the New York City area as well. But as we got into this project, um, you know, it's really a perfect uh, matchup with the needs of the conservation fund or their mission, which is we found a way that we could, you know, the property we're selling is essentially excess property in the sense that we're keeping the three camps uh, that I just described. They are still going to be maintained and owned outright by us. Um, but a lot of the surrounding land, which was put together uh, 95 years ago, actually, um, really was not being used very much except for some extended hiking. And so, you know, we have a situation here where we can sell the land uh, surplus, essentially, to the conservation fund, and we still have the uh, an agreement with them that will allow us to use the land for hiking and backcountry camping. So we could get some value out of the property while at the same time maintaining all of our traditional scouting operations. So a scout visiting 10 Mile River this coming summer will not notice one change in the program that he or, or she uh, experienced last year. So it's, it's, and then at the same time, we were, you know, we were very concerned. There was never really much of a thought of trying to sell the land to developers. You know, it would have been opposed, I think, by the local um, citizens anyway. Um, but we thought it was important to keep the integrity of the property together and so we'll still have access to it, and ultimately the public will have access to it once the state gets involved. So it's uh, it's really a win-win for us and, uh, I think, for the conservation movement. We thought as a leading environmental organization, selling sort of pristine forest land to developers just was not part of our sort of uh, ethos. And so the Conservation Fund turned out to be a marvelous partner. And Tom himself is a form well, is an Eagle Scout, so... Um, he understood exactly what we were trying to accomplish. And in terms of the the stage of the process that this is in, um, you know, you talked about, we talked about the first phase, the second phase in, encompassing uh, about 9,400 acres um, in all. Where in the process are you? Yeah, so uh, we have phased it um, two phases. Uh, and as you noted, we closed on the first phase just a, a week or so ago. Uh, the second phase, we hope, will close by the end of this year. There's some uh, uh, some structural uh, components to the property that um, uh, need to be addressed, and uh, then we'll be able to close on that and, and move forward. And at that point, the conservation fund would own the entirety of the property, and that is all but the camps that are being retained by the scouts. And as Dick said, it's a, it's a real win-win situation. You know, we had some work to do in the sense that there were former rifle rifle ranges from years ago that had been abandoned. But um, there are certain environmental cleanup processes you have to go through to make sure they're acceptable to a new buyer. Just, you know, as you're selling a home, you know, removing an underground fuel tank, those sorts of things have to be done for the new buyer. And so we are in the process of finishing those items up. Tom, of course, would like to close on phase two, as would we, as soon as possible. But we have a little bit of remaining work to do. And Tom, you well, Dick, you mentioned uh, the uses um, that the scouts uh, will continue to use uh, this region for. Tom, you mentioned uh, the goal is to have this area become uh, state forest uh, land. In the interim, uh, while the conservation fund owns uh, the majority of the land, uh, would the public be able to use that? How would that work? 
Yeah, there's a very large area down uh, on the Delaware River and just back from the river that is um, is open to the public. Uh, there's a fantastic um, hiking trail called the Tustin Mountain Trail. Uh, the National Park Service uh, uses parts of the property on the Delaware River for uh, for rafting, uh, landing, and takeoff. And uh, there's really a wonderful environment down there that is that is open and available to the public. Um, the rest of the property, while the Conservation Fund owns and manages this land, probably for the next you know three to five years, uh, we will um, you know maintain the relationship that the Scouts have had with that land, and also uh, local hunting clubs that have been using the land. But when uh, we convey, the Conservation Fund uh, conveys the property to the state uh, of New York as a new state forest. Uh, at that point, uh, the, the property will be open uh, in a very thoughtful, uh, planned way to, to the public. Uh, it's a very complicated um, uh, property from a natural resource standpoint, and we, we in the state and the scouts want to make sure that uh, the, the public uses are done in a very thoughtful, planned uh, way that's compatible with the, with the environment. But uh, there's great excitement in seeing this. It should be noted that the property was put together by Franklin Roosevelt in 1927 and has been uh, just the way it is pretty much since then. So uh, there is a change uh, afoot here, which is basically to see no change uh, really happen uh, other than eventually uh, more enhanced uh, public use of the property. Um, it's, it's just a, an exciting, exciting opportunity. I mean, the right? questions we've, we've gotten are like, will the state be putting in campgrounds and things and really developing the site? And that is our understanding would not be the intention. No, I don't believe that's the intention. Um, uh, having done a lot of work with the state of New York um, here uh, as a conservation fund, I know they have a very, very good, sound, uh, careful uh, land management uh, and recreation planning process that they'll go through. Uh, they need to, you know, learn the land and and build relationships locally and and with the scouts who will always be their neighbor and. Uh, and go through that process and, and figure out what really makes the most sense. But this is, um, this, you know, state reforestation areas, as they're called technically, uh, started in the sort of after the Dust Bowl era um, in the, I think, in the 30s uh, to really take properties, um, uh, large forested properties, and put them under perpetual, sound, sustainable forestry, but also for, uh, for public use and hunting and so forth. Uh, but they have to do that in a very careful way, and uh, that's, uh, that planning process will begin shortly, I'm sure. That's the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavulis speaking with Dick Davies, Scout Executive and CEO of the Greater New York Councils, and Tom Duffus, Vice President and Northeast Representative for the Conservation Fund. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2227. Or just listen at wamc.org. Or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.